Let me invite you this morning to go to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been working our way through this uh, wonderful passage of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, under the title, From Death to Life. The first three verses we looked at actually lay out for us why we need life, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're under the dominion and domination of Satan, and we, in fact, are ourselves ourselves enslaved to sin. We need life. Then last week, we looked at verses 4 through 7 and saw why God gives us life, because we need it, but also because he loved us and is rich in mercy and grace. And so he moved to us in our need to supply for us life, made us alive. He raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he did it through Christ, and he did it because of his mercy, his grace, his love. This morning, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. So please uh, look at the text of Scripture as we read it together from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If verses 1 through 3 tell us why we needed it, and 4 through 7 why God did it, in verses 8 and 9 it actually talks about how God saved us, how he brought us from death to life. And so when we look at these two verses, they're somewhat familiar but profound truths about the salvation that God has provided. And so I hope this morning, and for those of you that are familiar with these verses, that you won't let the familiarity blind you to the depth and wonder of the truth. And if you're not familiar with God's message in these two verses, that you'll listen uh, with a heart because the difference between eternity in death or in life really is wrapped up in the truth of verses eight and nine. Three truths about God's salvation that I want to draw from these two verses. The first is that salvation is God's work, not ours. Salvation is God's work, not ours. Look at verse eight, the language there. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The language here is, I think, very clear that the saving, the act of saving is done by someone for the person who's saved, right? In other words, this text isn't talking about how you would save yourself. It actually is talking about the fact that God saves. It's an act by someone done for the person's sake. Look look what it says. You have been saved. You haven't saved yourself. You You haven't even teamed up with God to provide salvation for yourself. That this is the act of God. And that's the consistent message of scripture that God saves sinners. Not that sinners save themselves or that sinners team up with God to save themselves that it is God alone who saves. I mean, in technical terms, the, the way it gets talked about is, and these are words that would, 
sort of carry over into English, and so maybe can help illustrate it. Monergism, mono is one, right? One worker versus synergism, combined work or two working. The scriptures are clear that salvation is monergistic. God does the work, that he is the one who saves. It doesn't mean that that humans are not responsive or involved, but think about it like this. If you're getting a heart transplant, it's not you and the doctor teaming up to do a heart transplant. I mean, you're there. You're, it's very necessary for you to be there, but it is the doctor who's going to take your heart out and put a new one in. And that's the way salvation is. It is God who must do that work. Only God has the power to bring death to life. And that's what he does in saving us, right? If we think differently than that, then we've got a a wrong concept of what the condition was in verses one through three. We're, We're actually thinking we're not as bad off as God says we are, right? We're thinking our spiritual problem is just a matter of spiritual health. And so if we change our spiritual exercise and our spiritual diet, we'll get in better shape spiritually, right? That we can actually do some things to improve our condition so that, so that we're better off spiritually, right? That, that we actually and somehow can do that. But the passage was clear in verses one through three that we're not just sick, we're dead in trespasses and sins. So we need God to raise us from the dead. No amount of self-effort can do that. That we were held captive, so we need somebody to rescue us. Right? That we, in fact, uh, are controlled by our sinful desires to such a degree that we need God to change us so that we're not uh, willingly subjecting ourselves to the path of sin. We, we must see how clearly and how differently the gospel is from self-help religion. Because right? our, our world is full of uh, the, the, the self-help perspective, right? I mean, you control your destiny, right? It's up to you. Nobody's going to do this for you. You need to do this. You need to take charge of this, right? And while that might make sense on a horizontal plane, as we relate to the creation around us in some ways, it's absolutely disastrous when we move it to a vertical plane and talk about our relationship to the creator. Yes, I have to get up and go to work to provide for myself, right? But that's because I'm alive physically. I actually have ability to go out and work a job. I have the ability to engage in the environment around me. 
on that plane is a totally different plane than the one that has to do with my relationship to God, which is on a spiritual level. And the scriptures have said that I am alienated from the life of God. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I don't have the ability to get out and control my eternal destiny because I've sinned against God and I have been condemned because of my sin. It'd be like saying to somebody in a, in a jail cell, hey, will yourself out of this jail cell. If you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. And they can grunt and groan and mentally puff themselves all they want. They're not going to transport themselves through those bars to freedom. Right? Spiritually, it is not going to happen. And, and the idea, right, that, that we can free ourselves from condemnation, we can make ourselves better so that we actually are acceptable to God is, is a condemning deception. Right? It is, in fact, not the truth that God has revealed. And so we have to own it the way God says, that if we're to be saved, it is going to have to be something that God does for us, not something we do. Right? And that's the difference between the good news of the gospel and the bad news of human man-made religious tradition which tell you, do this and live. And the gospel says, Christ did this. He accomplished it. He did the work and God alone can save you. And if you really get that, if we really understand it, then, then we will recognize that we will give up efforts to save ourselves we will actually recognize that, that if we're trying to make up for the things that we've done wrong, well, I've done a lot of bad stuff. I need to make up for it with the rest of the life I've got so that when I get to the end, the scales will balance out. Or if we think of, of uh, getting right with God as turning over a new leaf, Right, I've been going and doing my own thing, but you know what? I know it's time for me. I've got to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to live differently now. All of those are focused on us and what we might do or hope to do, intend to do, to make us acceptable to God. They're all efforts at self-salvation, and they are destined to failure. Because once you understand this truth that salvation is God's work, not ours, it's not yours. That means you recognize that you need a savior, not a supplement. Right? You're not just spiritually sick and need to take some spiritual vitamins and then you'll be doing better but that you're lost and need to be found. You're dead and need to be alive. You need a savior, not a helper, right? God doesn't help you save yourself. He requires us to own the fact that we are 
helpless and lost and condemned and need mercy, need grace. We need God to do a work on our behalf. There's the first truth. Salvation is God's work, not ours. The second, and it flows right out of it, is that salvation is a gift, not a reward. It's a gift, not a reward. Notice the language of the scriptures here. All right, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This uh, this text helps us see this truth in two ways. The first is positive. It comes right out and says, it is the gift of God. All right, so when I say salvation is a gift, not a reward, it's like right there, you see it? It is the gift of God. The not of reward is tied to those words, not as a result of works, right? When when you do something to earn something, to, to achieve something, you are rewarded for your efforts, right? And this text is saying salvation comes as a gift from God, not as a reward for your works or your efforts, not a result of what you have done, what you've accomplished, what you've contributed to it. The gift I take uh, as the, at the last of verse eight is a reference to the whole package, right? Some want to narrow it to grace is the gift or being saved is a gift or faith is the gift. I, I take it as that whole package, right? Everything that God does for us to save us is coming to us as a gift from him, right? God grants repentance unto life. God gives to believe in Jesus Christ. God gives his grace. God gives salvation. They're all the generosity and graciousness of God, which are received by faith, not by works. Here in this text, when, when Paul says uh, it's not a result of works, uh, he uses just a one-word statement. There are many times, for instance, in the book of Romans and Galatians, where he talks about works of the law. And in those cases, he's generally targeting a specific kind of, of uh, Judaizing, legalistic kind of an approach that's trying to bring people under the law of Moses as the way in which they would be saved. I think here Paul is being more general than that, right? He's, he, for instance, he says in Titus, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done that he saves us. So, so Paul uses the concept works not just of law keeping, but really of any effort by which you might try to establish your standing with God, the basis on which God might accept you. Because there are people uh, constantly, I think, who are trying to do that. Obviously, very common is religious works, right? There are people today who will go to a gathering in a church building, and they will do certain rituals because they think those help them accumulate merit before God. Right? So they 
might say certain prayers, partake of certain rituals. They might add some extra things to it, you know, light some candles. They might get up tomorrow morning and say certain prayers. They might do certain things because they're thinking that these works of righteousness can accumulate for them merit before God. And in fact, some religious systems would turn around and say, and the the excessive merit of saints might be purchased by you or obtained by you so that you can get other people's merit to count for you so that you have sufficient merit to be accepted before God. And Paul says, it's it's not the reward of merit. It's not the reward of religious performance or ritual. Other people, because this carries over into uh, what I'd say is, I'm going to use the word non-religious, but here's the little fact of life. There's no such thing as a non-religious person. (laughs) We all have a religion of some sort. There's something we're depending on to make meaning to life, right? Self-help is the religion of a lot of people. Secularism has become the religion of a lot of people, right? And and so here's what they'd say is, they'd say something like, well, it's it's, uh, moral, moral works are the way in which you accumulate a good life that has lasting significance and acceptance before God. Some, some it's benevolence or charity, right? They're going to they're gonna be kind or charitable to people, and that's going to be the thing. And, and so you, you say to them, hey, when you're going to stand and give an account of yourself before God, what, what, what are you going to say? What are you going to offer up? And some would say, well, it's, look at what I did. I was a good church member, and I did church kinds of religious things, or I was a kind person, and I treated people fairly, or I was a good person, and I didn't do things worthy of death, right? They have some basis that they think if they accumulate enough of this, they can cash it in, right? I mean, this is probably like a goofy, but like the person who plays the video games in the arcade and and the tickets are coming out, right? And they're going to try and get enough tickets to get the big prize that they want. I'm not sure I've got enough tickets now, so I'm going to do some more because I want to pile up those tickets so that when I get to heaven, I can sort of lay them down and they'll go into the weigher And I'll get my prize. I'll get the award or reward of my efforts. So I'm going to, I'm going to start putting in the time, doing the things I need to do to get the tickets I need. So I can lay those on the table and God will say, Hey, here's your prize. Right? That's, that's unfortunately the way too many people think about it. But the scriptures are very clear that that's not the way it works. I mean, look at it again, beginning at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. All right? And, and then it deliberately sets that in contrast in verse 9, not as a result of works, 
All right, so grace is when God does for us something that we don't deserve, that is unmerited favor. In fact, it's even, it's even bigger than that, right? It, grace is undeserved favor for those who actually deserve disfavor. Because we're not a neutral spot. Remember again, verses one through three. I'm in a spot of being condemned because I've rebelled against God and broken his will. I'm not in a position of neutrality, right? There's the evil people over there, and then there's the people who actually are perfect and can get into heaven because of their perfection. But I'm sort of in neutral zone, and God then gives me this gift. No, I'm on the side of the sinners. What I deserve is God's judgment, his disfavor. But grace is when God gives favor to those who don't deserve it. He acts toward them in a way that they are not worthy of. And that's why he needs to see grace and works as so radically opposed to each other. Because works is based on worthiness, right? If I do enough, then I'm worthy of salvation. If I do enough, then God will give me what I deserve, and what I deserve is to get into heaven. Works is radically opposed to the biblical message of grace. That's why he says it's by grace, not of works. Because grace stands on the merit and favor of God and of Christ, not our own. And that's why he says in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Because faith is reliance or trust or confidence in God's promise to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Faith receives a gift. God promises that he will save everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, calls on his name. Faith is reliance on that promise, trust in that promise. And faith, too, is set in opposition to works. It's for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? It is the gift of God, not of works. Because works effectively undercuts trust in the promise. If, 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 if God says to you, I will save you exclusively only on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and his atonement for sin. That's the only basis upon which I will save you, graciously. And you go, okay, good, good, good. Please do that. And just to be sure, I'm going to make sure I work hard. Just to make sure, I'm going to make sure I'm a good person. Just to make sure means you are not sure, right? The minute I look at the promise of God and he says he will do this, and I go, well, just to be sure, 
I'm saying I don't trust God. That's why faith and works cannot be mixed together at all as a basis, uh, as, as the means by which God would save us. Because right? if I think I have to supplement the promise of God and the work of Jesus Christ, then I'm saying they are not sufficient. All right? So, and again, any human analogy breaks down. But let's say, you know, we go out to dinner and I say to you, hey, listen, it's on me tonight. I'm going to pay for it. And something comes up, right, that, that uh, you know, I have to leave early. And you see me hand a credit card to the waitress and, and a server. Is that the right way to say it these days? All right. The server. All right. I, I hand the credit card, say, hey, I come back. I say to you, it's all taken care of. Everything's good. And then come to the end of the evening and you go, let me give you my card. Well, they, they said they'd cover it. Well, just to be sure, take my card as well. What you're doing is expressing doubt about either my promise or my ability. Right? You're, you're actually going to my character and my capability and saying, I know he said that, but you know, I'm just not sure. Or this is a little bigger than I thought it was gonna be. Right after I left, you piled on the desserts or whatever. Right? And, and, and well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure he meant he would cover all of that. Or I'm not sure he's got enough limit on his card to cover all of that. Or I'm not sure if he was willing to cover all of that. Any way you look at it, I am now calling into question, you are calling into question my character, my ability, my commitment, my promise. And that's what works religion is. It's when Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross, he covered the entire bill. He paid for every last sin of the sinner who trusts in him. There's nothing left to pay. And when you think you have to work it off, when you act as if Christ's death isn't sufficient, when you think maybe God won't keep his promise to you, you are not operating from faith. Right? You're actually... You're not operating from reliance or trust in. You're operating from a stance of yourself, supplementing and completing the work of Christ. And that's contrary to the text of Scripture here. You know, if you think about it, Satan probably couldn't have come up with a more effective lie than to make people believe that God wants them to earn his favor. I mean, just think about the sinister effectiveness of that satanic lie. It, it, it actually recognizes our guilt. 
Right? You and I know we're sinners. I mean, Romans chapter 2 says that our conscience testifies against us. So we know there's a God, Romans 1, and we know we're guilty before that God, Romans 2. So we know there's an issue between God and us that, that needs to be resolved. But at the heart of that issue actually is our human pride. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to do something to achieve it for ourselves. That's why we turned away from God. And, and Satan's lie actually has this sinister capacity to make us think we're being humble exactly while we're being proud. Right? Because I, I go through some religious motion in which I say, you know, say some sin of confession, some prayer of confession 40 times, and I'm, and I'm talking bad about myself, and I'm saying all these things, and I'm putting stuff on me. I'm trying to be humble for the purposes of clearing myself. Right, that's Pastor Peter mentioned the the tax collector in in the parable that Jesus told. You know what the other guy was doing? Right, the tax collector was saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." You know what the religious person was doing? Listing out all the things he did that made him different from a sinner. Right, and doing it in the context of worship that I'm certain if we could have come alongside of this guy and said, so why are you here before God? Oh, because he's God and I'm just, you know, I'm his humble servant and worshiper. That's the, that's the sinister nature of it, right? It gives you the feeling of being humble at the same time you are being proud because you're doing things that make you acceptable to God in your mind. You're doing things that one day you're going to be able to lay before God and say, look at the works of my hands. Didn't I pray? Didn't I fast? Didn't I go to all the holy days? Didn't I uh, observe contrition, make confession, keep the commandments? Didn't I do all of these things? In other words, I'm going, I, 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 I. And it doesn't matter if you dress it in sackcloth and ashes. Right? Some of the most proud people can put on the mask of humility to advantage themselves before God. And Satan just keeps reeling them in by giving them that false sense of humility that's really an evidence of their pride to reject God's way because it actually turns us away from God's grace. All right, if I, if I stood here today and I said to you, listen, you need to be saved by God's grace through faith plus the keeping of the law. All right, you might find that attractive 
because it gives you something to control in the process, something by which you can benchmark your achievement and accomplishment. But it would mean, to use the language of Scripture, that you have turned away from Christ. You've turned away from grace. And you know what God's word would say about me telling you that? Here's what God's word would say. Let him be accursed. And that's the divine verdict on a false teacher who tells somebody that you can work your way to heaven. Right? That's why I'm not hesitant to call it the lie of the devil that can, can creep into any kind of man-made religion that gives an appearance of godliness but denies the power of it. Right? It's so important to realize that, that these verses of Scripture are really sort of like a, a rock on which some message either falls or rises. Someone comes and says, salvation is by your works. They are crashing up against the truth of God. He cannot, he cannot be speaking on behalf of God at that point. So here's the thing that I would say to all of us this morning. When you think about your inevitable anticipated meeting with God, because Romans chapter 14 says, We'll all give an account of ourselves to God, right? So so when you think about the inevitable encounter that you will have before God and give an account of yourself, what are you going to lay down as the claim of eternal life? What are you going to offer up to God? If, if anything, anything is coming out of your heart that says, well, you know, I got baptized or I, I was a good church member, I served, I was a good person, I did X, Y, Z. Can I, can I say this as clearly as I can? And, and because I'd be concerned about your soul, you are offering to God the works of your hands. And salvation is not by your works. It's a gift. The only answer would be not in me, but in Christ. My only hope in life and death is that I took Jesus at his word. Jesus promised, anyone who comes to me, I will never turn away. And so I called on the name of Christ to be my savior. I trust it in him. What he did at the cross paid for my sin. How he lived righteously before you gave me the righteousness because of my union with him that I need. He's interceding for me and I trust in Jesus. It's Jesus who saved me. That's the only answer because it's a gift. It's not a reward. And that means, look at verse 9, the third truth, that salvation exalts the giver, not the receiver. It is not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And really, 
in some ways, this is the, if I could, the, the point that Paul's driving to because verses 8 and 9 are an explanation tied to verse 7 we saw last week. Look what verse 7 says. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, so in all of the ages to come, there will be this display of the riches of God's glory that was shown in his kindness to us who are in Christ Jesus. Well, why will it be this display for eternity? For by grace, you've been saved, right? You're, you're going to be there because by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works. So no one can boast, right? Because if I show up at the gate of heaven with my, you know, my backpack full of good works, you might show up with your, you know, your suitcase full of good works. I don't care if you show up with a U-Haul truck full of good works. Right? Whatever it is, and you show that, and, and all of a sudden they go, hey, well, man, that's impressive. Come on in. On the other side of that gate, you know who's going to get the credit? Someone, someone will see me and they'll go, what are you doing here? And I'll open up my backpack. Here's why I'm here. You'll open up your suitcase. Oh, here's why I'm here. Mr. U-Haul flips up the back. Oh, here's why I'm here. That's not going to happen. Because all that stuff, all the, all the things that I would present to God as works of righteousness, the, the prophet Isaiah tells us what God thinks about it. They are filthy rags. God's not impressed. He's not going to go, all that stuff I said about you people being sinners, you, boy, you're special. You're different. Come on in. No, our works of righteousness are insufficient to satisfy the perfect righteousness of God. And so when God saves sinners, it is God who will be glorified. Our boast will be in him. He gets the credit, not us. He receives the glory, not us. If I can look at any work of mine as the basis of my salvation, then I have something I think I deserve or something about which I can take pride, that is boast. And this text says that can't happen. And again, here's why I think this lie is so powerfully effective. I mean, if you go, go back and you know, read the scriptures, it doesn't take long. 11th chapter. The world of humanity is after something. Let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves. Right? That's deep in the human heart of rebellion against God is to make a name for myself. And salvation actually cuts at the very heart of that 
because my boast is not in my name, but in the name of the Lord. The only thing I can boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.14. The name of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.31 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. That my only boast is in him and what he's accomplished. There's nothing for me to make a name for myself in regard to salvation. There's nothing there. Grace requires, it demands humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And faith is the expression of that humility. That's why it's by grace through faith. Right? If I'm going to come before the presence of God, I can't come in my pride because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, which means I have to humble myself before him. And when it comes to the issue of salvation, humbling myself means trusting him, believing his promise, recognizing that he alone saves. I cannot save myself. And faith is acknowledging that to God. God, I can't save myself. I cannot atone for my sin. I cannot accumulate the righteousness that I need. I am a sinner. I'm asking you to be merciful. I'm trusting in your promise that you give grace to those who humble themselves. I believe. That's what the scripture calls us to do. There is an eternal, an eternal difference between look at what God did for me. That's the boast. Look at what God did for me. And look at what I did. That's the pride. If I'm boasting in myself, then it's an issue of pride. If I'm boasting in the Lord, it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of joy. Look at what God has done for me. Let me tell you about it. So these two verses packed in truth, right? The source of salvation is God. The basis for that salvation is grace. The character of salvation is a gift. The means of salvation is faith. And the purpose of salvation is God's glory, right? So there, there's a, a constellation of truth that ties together, that makes it good news. Because God saves sinners by his grace, through faith, as a gift for his glory. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you so much for making a way of salvation for us that is perfect and sufficient, that that actually deals with our sin effectively and removes the animosity between us as sinners and you, a righteous, holy God. It is all of your grace as a gift in your son, received by trust and faith in him, calling on the name of the Lord so that we come to worship you, boast in the cross and in Christ alone. Father, please help us never to get over these truths. What a terrible thing it would be in our hearts if we 
would hear something like this and see a text like this and just think, oh, I know that. We've lost the wonder of this, that we have been made right as a gift of your grace found in Christ ought to cause us to have a heart that overflows with praise. It ought to freshly humble us that we have been the recipient of such kindness. We ought to be amazed at your grace. And Lord, please fight against the tendency in us to want to trade off our works for your blessing. To think that we live in that kind of an economy with you, that we do things that are right and good so that we can have your favor instead of receiving it as a gift trusting in your kindness rather than trying to earn it from you. And Lord, please work deeply in the hearts of any here today who have been putting their hope falsely in their own righteousness or their own religious performance or charitableness, kindness to others. Lord, help them to see that none of those things are sufficient because the debt is too great. The depth of our sin is too much. We need to be rescued. We need you to lift us up out of the miry clay and set our feet on the solid rock of Christ. Would you bring them in humble repentance and faith to acknowledge their sin and confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and only hope of salvation. But please work to magnify your glory this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.